Good morning. Didn't you want to dance in the rain Saturday? That was unexpected on my part, at least. Thank you, dear Lord, for that rain. That was refreshing. We need some more. Let's keep praying. I think I mentioned to you that uh, we are under strict command to pray every Sunday for rain. Even in the midst of the summer, even on the hottest of days, we are going to store prayers for rain. So pray with us. Good morning. It's good to be here. Good to see you. We're back in 1 Corinthians 7. Brian mentioned the words inordinate desires. I kind of picked up the thought of inordinate desires last week from uh, 1 Corinthians 7 when we talked about the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Things look better over there. People look prettier. Their Instagram is better than my Instagram. Their spouse is just so sweet. Their children, so compliant, so caring, so wonderful. That guy's car seems to run so good. And it's so much prettier than mine. If only I had that color hair, or length of hair, or clothing, or muscles, or lack of muscles, or mobility, or flexibility. And we could go on and on and on, couldn't we? It's just that way, isn't it? Well, Jesus has a version. It's not the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Jesus' version is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And of course, that comes on the heels of Jesus' teaching about the Father's care, how we don't need to be stressed, distressed, anxious, because the Father cares for us. He cares for us more than we even are able to care for ourselves. And yet, we toil and we spin and we worry and we fret. And Jesus says, there's really no need. No need. Because the Father cares for you. What there is need for is for you to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, Everything else will take care of itself. That's a great wisdom. You could pay a lot of money for that truth. People have degrees on their walls and charges for that kind of advice. If only we would take it. We would understand things we don't always understand today. Jesus changes our thinking. I don't know that we'll ever feel like we've grown into that truth. That we, I don't know that we'll ever think we have sought the kingdom enough and his righteousness enough. But the more we do, we will realize great truths in our lives of wholeness, satisfaction in God himself in Jesus Christ. And we'll realize that our thinking about the grass is greener over there will change because 
He changes our thinking, and he causes us to see how green the grass is right under our own feet. We're the first and foremost, we are first and foremost disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we put him first, as we follow him in making decisions about our lives, decisions that Paul Uh, addresses that the Corinthians are making in their lives. Decisions about marriage and divorce, whether to become married or to remain unmarried. These kinds of decisions, Paul says, you have the wherewithal, you have the means, you have the sense to make yourselves if you make them in Jesus Christ. If you make them as a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so, in effect here, he is talking, as Brian helped us to start to appreciate, he's talking about our devotion to the Lord. And in fact, in verse 35, he says, I want to secure above all your undivided devotion to the Lord. And the Lord is whom? The Lord is Jesus Christ. He is our Christ and Lord, Messiah and Lord. He's the boss. He's the one we follow. If we're not following him, we're following ourselves or someone else. And uh, you got to serve somebody, and it's assumed that we're going to serve the Lord. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians and he's telling us, put Jesus first, even if putting him first doesn't look like it's going to make the, green, the grass greener. Follow him first, even if it doesn't look like the greener choice of the two. And his command does come first in what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's why, in fact, he says, uh, I want you to know that this is of the Lord, or I want you to know uh, this is my advice, not the Lord's command. And you see that most clearly, for example, in verse 10 and 11, where uh, he says to the husband and the wife, uh, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So, I want us to appreciate that Paul expects the Corinthians to make responsible decisions about advantages and disadvantages for the kingdom of God, for others and for themselves, based on their devotion to Jesus Christ. Pretty basic, huh? Pretty straightforward, something we could have all figured out. Um... They have to, Paul says, live with the decision they make. But he wants them to thrive in the Lord. In effect, if you stay, stay because you're following Jesus. If you change, change because you're following Jesus. I understand that. I became a Christian at about 19. That's when I... um, after, I was a very dark, kind of dismal person, gloomy. Um, we didn't use the word depression a lot back then, but that's what it was. And uh, 
I was taking long walks in the evening, staying, keeping more and more to myself, um, cutting off my friends. Uh, one gloomy evening, I, I gave in. I, I conceded, I surrendered to what some people had been sharing with me about Jesus Christ, something that I knew from my background, from my mother in particular, and uh, alone on a canal bank, I, I said, I give up, you take over. You know how to do this better than me. You're the Lord. And that began my, my walk. My, I began following Jesus Christ. And I remember walking home thinking, well, how, do, how does this all begin now? I didn't want to be involved in the church. I didn't, I, sorry, but I thought Christians were kind of goofy. And uh, it took a while for me to, to, to go to church. And that came because the Lord impressed upon me. You call me Lord, yet you're not willing to identify with the rest of the people that call me Lord. What makes you such a hot shot? Get over there, get involved, make a difference. If you think they're goofy, then get in there and show them the way, you know? Do it right. Don't sit off and be critical. You know, a lot of Christian life is common sense. So, in light of his Lordship. So, uh, as I followed him, I... I felt a, a compunction, a, a prompting of the Lord to give constantly more and more of myself to him. And I was, I, I was an art major. I always, from a young, from childhood, I remember in grade school, you know, you draw a picture with the rest of the kids. The teacher says, probably, you know, like she says to every kid, what a, what a beautiful picture. But, oh, to me, that, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm going to be an artist. And, and, and my schooling was focused that way. And here now, God's starting to, to prompt me to give more and more. To, to, I just felt this compulsion that I, I, my life would not be in order, would not be right, would not be suited to anything else but to, to full-time ministry service of the Lord. And as I was fighting and wrestling with that, um, I finally made that decision. And then in this process, I see Shelly, um, that girl that I had seen before I even became a Christian. I saw her in the choir. Somebody dragged me into church. She was up there singing. She alone had this aura about her. And uh, I mean, it was unearthly. And uh, she just had a beauty about her. She still does. Um, and I thought to myself, you may have heard me say this, but it's true. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, you know, if I were to become a Christian, but I'm not, and uh, if I were to get married, but I'm not, I would marry, I would want to marry that girl. And now, here I was. Uh, I finally am at church, and there she is. And uh, I, I won't drag you through all the scintillating and fascinating details of our courtship, but now we're talking seriously. And again, um, following the Lord for me in this situation, and I'm, I'm, I'm now, you know, 20, and I'm, I'm wrestling with the issue of 
here's this wonderful girl that is the apple of my eye, but does she want to buy in to what God is calling me to do? And I've wanted to live my whole life as an artist, you know, a bohemian lifestyle um, on the beach, kind of like a beer commercial or something, but now God's gotten a hold of me and I'm serious about this whole thing and uh, yet I'm still pursuing art courses and and really within uh, a short span of time, I had to have this conversation with Shelley, are you willing to put this calling of God on my life first as well? Because that's what it would mean. Shelley could have been anything she wanted to be. She could have been a doctor. And I, I know along the way through our marriage, there were times where I'm sure she wanted to find a better husband. And there were times where I never thought that at all. But the point is, is that you live out your commitments. And interestingly, we decided to get married, and the day after I had decided to commit my life to this full-time ministry, I was taking art courses, and my mentor, my, my muse, my, there was, I had a teacher who was a, national, a nationally known artist, and, and he came up to me just outside of class. He said, John, I'm glad I, saw, I see you. He says, you know, you've got to start showing and selling your work now. And those were words I'd always wanted to hear. I mean, from, you know, to me, he's the master, and now he's saying, it's time for you to get out there and make it. You've got what it takes. And I said, no, I, I said, I just, I've just com- committed my life to full-time Christian ministry. And that was a tough decision. What I want us to appreciate in sharing a couple of these examples is when we follow Christ and, and we come to places in our life where we have to make choices we have to put Christ first even when it's some of the most precious things of our lives that seem like they might be in jeopardy but as I said in Christ you'll find the grass under your feet is always growing greener indeed as I said last week and I want to emphasize it again imagine what God can do with you right where you are And here he picks up if you're married, if you're unmarried, but above all, if you're devoted. So I want to share just a a little bit about if you're married, which is the first thing that Paul emphasizes and picks up in verses 1 through 5, 10 through 11, and 12 through 16 in particular. To understand what Paul is saying here, because Paul's gotten something of a bad rap, I think, in the past, but to really understand or hear Paul correctly, you have to understand the world in which he was living and writing. For example, a marriage in Paul's day, especially out there in the polytheistic pagan world, a marriage um, was basically... uh, It was a marriage in a man's world. And the man had all the legal power. Husbands were the kings of the realm. Marriages were more than often (laughs) mostly arranged. And the fathers had all the power. 
over their daughters in making those marriages happen. They were often made out of convenience, not in the daughter's interests, but in the father's and the husband's to be interests. And sex in marriage was for creating children. There was no, not so much the notion of affection or romance, um, certainly not pleasure. In fact, uh, there was a saying, um, wives of the time thought of their marriages in which because of their dowry, which went to the husband-to-be, they bought their husbands and ended up with a master. So they bought their husbands out of, from their father, who was the master, into the care of another master. The wife was to be chaste, modest, oversee the home. Often children were raised if there were servants, uh, slaves in the home, and these were not in terms of, you know, our American um, history, uh, black slavery. This was a different kind of beast that I don't have time to elaborate on. But um, basically, you know, I kind of grew up, wait till your father gets home. And that, that really was uh, the world of the, of the home of the, of the first century polytheistic pagan, pagan household. There's a lot more to be said. This is just the tip of the iceberg. But to kind of give you a real flavor, I just want to give you three short excerpts. This is from a writing called Advice to the Bride and Groom. And the man who wrote this advice to the bride and groom is a friend of the family, a dear friend of the family and of the bride and the groom. It was presented and actually read on the night of their marriage ceremony and the consummation of their marriage, which in Roman marriage was was consummated on the spot while people enjoyed their celebration and then they would return and everybody would witness the consummation or proof of the of the of the marriage. This was written by a man of the very time of Paul and not even very far, the events, uh, not very far from Corinth. Here's the first excerpt. This isn't the whole story, but this gives us an insight into 1 Corinthians 7. This is the advice that was read. Imagine this young wife and wife-to-be and and husband-to-be. A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. Who are the first friends? The gods are the first and most important friends. Therefore, it's becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and slam the door on any oddball ritual or outlandish superstitions. By the way, now you can read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, where Peter is sensitive to the wife who has become a Christian in a marriage with a husband who is a polytheist, believing in many gods, pagan believer. And imagine how difficult that would be. And that helps give us a little background even here when we come to verses uh, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 of chapter 7. Here's another excerpt. 
If a husband lacks self-control in his pleasures and commits some peccadillo with a paramour or a maidservant, it's best if his wedded wife doesn't become peeved or angry. She should think of it this way. It's out of respect for her that leads her husband to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with another woman instead of with her. Or this excerpt, a husband should be smart and not provoke his wife by coming home with perfume or the scent of another woman on him. It's unfair to pain and disturb her so much for the sake of a trivial pleasure. Well, what a difference in what we read in verses one through five, where they bring up the question about a level of holiness that goes to the degree of complete celibacy in light of the circumstances, which we, were, uh, ex- we explained last week. But I want to pick it up in verse two. Paul alters that in his says, because of the temptations to sexual immor- immorality, Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife conjugal rights to her husband, or his conjugal rights is the idea. Verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. He has authority. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul doesn't care how unquestioned men's freedoms were at that time. He lays down the law of equality with common business terms, stressing equally binding rules. And I want you just to appreciate this real real quick. In verse three, conjugal rights in the ESV, um, marital duty in another version, um, sexual responsibility or sexual duty. that, That expression in verse three is usually a debt of money. I mean, these are practical, everyday business terms. And when you owe a debt, you have an obligation. Paul uses a word of obligation here in this respect. Verse four, the word authority. This is the same word that would be used of state authority, legal authority. And he says that the husband body is is in the authority of the wife and the wife's body is in the authority of the husband. This is incredible language. And verse five, the word deprive, usually a word used of defrauding someone or defaulting on 
an obligation. In other words, don't default on this. Don't deprive, but don't default on this responsibility. You see, what Paul is saying is it now matters whether husband and wife are responsive to each other's needs in a way that their culture would not have encouraged at all. I mean, in some ways, Paul is incredibly progressive here in a way that um, I don't think we fully appreciate. There's a new and better law, he says, and a new and better morality for both. So he contrasts wildly um, with the rules for marriage among the polytheists. What's interesting is in chapter 7, 12 times, 12 times Paul's argument alternates between men and women. And in all 12 cases, there is complete mutuality between the two sexes. It reminds me of something that also is familiar. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33, starts off in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence, out of the fear of the Lord. And the Lord, of course, is always Jesus. And then he goes on to say, listen to this, I want you to hear this very carefully. He says, uh, husbands, love your wife as Christ. Wife, submit to your husband as the church. Now when I heard that at the time, I just heard, in the end, she, she's got to submit to me. I didn't demand that a lot. I didn't need to, but I remember there was one occasion, I don't remember what the tiff was about, who does? At the time, they're so important, aren't they? And uh, I said, you know, I, I mean, I just came right out, I said, You're, you gotta submit to me. And I could tell she wasn't with that at all. <laughs> so I left the room. And I mean, I kind of stormed, stormed out of there. And where did I go? I got my Bible. And I came, I came back in the room with the Bible. I had it already open to Ephesians chapter 5. It says it, it, says it right here. S wife, submit. And, um, well, I, I don't remember exactly what she had to say, but I remember what she was saying. She was saying, I haven't, I've, I've got, I'm not having any of this. This is a bunch of, you know, baloney. Well, I, I just, I instinctively, you know, remember, we're like, she, I was 20 and she was 19 when we got married and, and not too much time has passed, you know, we're still like maybe 23, 22 or something. And I just, I just instinctively, I mean, she was pushing me to the utter limit. And I reared back like I was going to hit her. And she said, you hit me and you'll never touch or see me again. 
And I just, like, a, like an old robot on Lost in Space or something, started sparking out and caught flames. And, and I melted like the Witch of the West or whatever in The Wizard of Oz. I mean, I just didn't know what to do with that. You see, I heard that whole thing wrong. I don't know. Sometimes we hear things wrong because we hear it, you know, the same way, kind of through the culture. The culture influences us powerfully. I just seized on that word submit and wanted to, like a wand, you know, wave it when it was going to serve me. And really, the issue wasn't about... Submission, the issue was about my insecurity and my anger, and I got help for that because I, I worked on that. But I want you to hear this again. Some of you are in the business world. Some of you know about leadership, and some of you know about what it is to follow. Listen to these words again. Husband, love your wife as Christ. Wife, love your husband as the church. Submit, I mean, to your husband as a church. In a business world, the greater responsibility and accountability is on the husband. He's the one who is ultimately responsible for the marriage. He's got to set the example. If you, if you look on your bulletin, I think it says uh, Senior Pastor John Venema. You'd never probably believe it, but you know, that's, that's the most senior position at Grace Community Church. But I have to be the most submissive of all to serve the Lord. And responsibility, authority, and accountability that comes with it is a great responsibility. It doesn't make me better. In that area, that's where I have to do my job in a way that honors the Lord and furthers his work. It doesn't make me better than somebody else. It's just that's what I was trained and called to do. And that's what I do. But I'll tell you, I, I submit to others a lot more because I ultimately submit to the Lord. And in submitting to him, that make, means I've got to serve his purposes and accomplish his ends in a way that brings people together and suits his problem. But in the marriage relationship, if, if, if you're the one that has to love as Christ... That tells me that I have to be the better husband and I have to follow Jesus to love her whether she submits to me or not. I have to be the better Christian. I'm, I'm not necessarily, but I've got to try. I'm accountable. I'm responsible. And when I got a hold of that, well, when God got a hold of me, what, what that meant was in our relationship, I had to start... Well, for example, if we'd have a disagreement or, or a fight, why do I tell you this? It's not because I'm so proud of myself. I'm actually kind of ashamed of a lot of the things I did. But I'm forgiven. It's 
back there, but I share it because I learn from these things and maybe you can learn from them too and they're relevant to what Paul's saying here when he talks about husbands and wives. We'd be arguing and, and I seem to always come out on top because I'm very re- rational and reasoning and, and, and also I, I can argue really good. And also I was very adept at leaving certain evidence out of the argument which helps me to win the argument. But when the, when the Lord was number one, then I started realizing, you know what? You're not telling the whole story. You're not being completely honest. You're not explaining why, why you did this or that or what you were afraid of or what it was you were really trying to get. Now you're just trying to save face. Why don't you own up? Why don't you be honest, John? Why don't you admit your part is where you're at fault? Why don't you set the example And I did, and some of our, I had to stop and say, you know what, I'm not being completely honest, because that's what it was. And there was a time when Shelley would tell you, you know, John's more able, easy, more frequently says, I was wrong, forgive me. Because I was. Maybe I wasn't all wrong, but for my wrong, I had to own up to that. What I'm trying to say, guys, is if, if you would realize that the marriage is ultimately your responsibility, that you are to be Christ in the presence of that home and set that example and show what it's like to really be a follower. Never doesn't mean you fall, stumble over a rock. doesn't mean you don't skin your shin or look bad or get mud on your face, but you get up, you dust off, and you go after Jesus, and you just keep going off after him. And you know what? If your wife, your spouse, wants to love Jesus like you do, then I'll tell you, you'll have a great marriage, and you'll have a mutual respect in which... You know what? Shelly and I have such an even-handed marriage, we don't even think about roles and responsibilities anymore. Um, when we moved over to South San Francisco, we had to live with somebody else. He was gone a lot because he traveled. His wife had had passed, and and so uh, he was a big executive with Dow Chemical and always on the road. One evening, uh, the phone rang. We had sold the house just uh, you know a month before, and uh, Shelley answered the phone. It was the guy who bought it from us, a friend, friend from the church named Mark, and Mark uh, says hello, and he says, hey, I need to talk to John about something on the house, and Shelley says, well, I could help you with that. He goes, oh, I, I got to talk to John. Okay, well, here he is, and I'm standing there trying to figure out what it is, and I give her a look like, well, you could have, you're the one to, because in our relationship, she handled all the finances. She was more, she was better at it than me. I started off, but she's the better. I love it. She does a better job. Trust her completely. She makes good decisions. She's frugal. She invests well. She, she could be a planner, you know, one of those financial planners. But anyway, so she hands the phone to me. I, hey, Mark, what's going on? He tells me, hey, I need to talk to you about I got this issue with the house, yada, yada. And I go, hey, Mark, you need to talk to Shelly. <laughs> Boom. Well, you know, there are things in our lives that are just, she's better at some things than me. But we, we share in this together. She consults me, I consult her. We're a team. 
But before God, if our marriage is in trouble, I don't look at her, I look in the mirror. And I think that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter five. And I think it has some bearing on 1 Corinthians 7. In 10 through 16, he picks up the issue of marriage in verses 10 and 11. He, uh, he says, this is of the Lord. In other words, husband, you don't divorce your, your wife. Wife, don't divorce your husband. If you do, don't, don't remarry. That's, that's the Lord's command. So he's the boss. That's the way it is. If you divorce, can't remarry. And I think the Lord has reasons for that, but I don't have time to elaborate. In verses 12 through 16, which is most interesting to me in light of some of the things that I shared from, from the culture and the situation, you can understand how difficult it would be, say, for a wife. If she leaves her husband because he's a polytheist and now she's devoted to the one true God and a follower of Jesus Christ, that, that can be hard. But if he consents, Paul says, now the word consent becomes very powerful. Paul says if he consents, then you have the opportunity to influence him and your children and vice versa. By the way, if a woman left, the man, he would keep the children. He had, he had the control. It would be very difficult for a woman in that situation. It sheds tremendous light, but also helps us to appreciate the sensitivity of what Paul is saying here. He says, if, if they consent, you have influence. The Corinthians thought that in such a marriage, they would be tainted by the polytheist, by the non-believer. That's the issue of sanctification or make holy and why he talks about the kids becoming tainted or unholy. He says, no, no. He says, you don't become tainted. He says, you influence them. You have a holy effect on them. You have an influence on them for Christ because you're the stronger. You're, you're the more powerful in Jesus Christ because their gods are no gods. So he wants us to appreciate that. And then he takes up the unmarried. He starts off in verses eight and nine, and really he's not comparing the gift of, of celibacy to marriage as much as he is comparing the gift of a positive attitude. The one ha who has a positive attitude toward choosing to be celibate in order to make the most of his or her freedom to serve Christ without frustration or regret, on the one side and on the other, the one who has a positive attitude towards choosing to be married in order to take care and fulfill his or her responsibilities, intimacies, love, and obligations while equally living out devotion to Christ. And that's picked up in verses 25 through 38 and 39 through 40. And especially in 29 through 35, he's talking about the present circumstances, the present crisis. He says the time has been foreshortened and that doesn't mean that he just knows somehow prophetically or intuitively that the Lord is near. He knows because Jesus has come. Looking at it prophetically, the day of the Lord always depended on the coming of the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is here, you know? And he indwells his church. He indwells each and every one of you in the Holy Spirit. This means the time has been shortened, Paul says. He says, in light of this and this present crisis, which we talked about to some extent. 
And he says, in terms of the fact that this world is passing away, he says, look, I just want you to make good decisions. He says, when you're, when you're unmarried, you are sensitive to, to being holy unto the Lord. And I can remember that. I'll bet you could too, if you're not married. He says, but when you get married, you're going to have troubles. And he lays them out there. You should read them. It's kind of funny. He says, all the cares of the world. He talks about marrying. He talks about weeping. He talks about rejoicing. These are our reactions to the circumstances of life, to the comings and goings of life. He says, doing business, investing. He says, I want you to know it's tough because he says, when you're married, you're concerned about your wife or you're concerned about your husband. And it's really hard sometimes to put the Lord first when you're concerned about all these things. So he says, when you make this decision, I want you to make it as a responsible adult. I'm just talking to you straight. He says, own your decision. If you make this decision and you decide to get married, that's not a sin, he says. You haven't, you haven't failed. You haven't messed up. But you've got to own it. You've got to know what you're getting into. And I want you to thrive in that decision. I want you to thrive in Jesus Christ. You can read it for yourself. It's really straightforward. And that really brings me to the third point, which I'm going to say very quickly you know he says I know you're devoted to God so make that decision own your decision and handle it in devotion to Christ don't blame God when life is tough and I understand this Marriage is tough. Maybe it was just Shelley and me. I'm difficult to live with. I'm, I've, been, I've been kind of um, domesticated. And I'm happy about that. The Lord domesticated me. And we've grown. But there have been tough times in our marriage. But we, we realize in the Lord, the grass under our feet is where it's greenest. And it has become greener and greener and greener. And in your life, in Christ, when you live it for him, be patient. Imagine what he can do through you, right where you are. But own the decision you make. You know, on Facebook, there's a theme. It's in the air or something. Life is hard and life is unfair. We know that. That's why we signed on to follow Jesus. We also know that that's crazy. Life is hard. Life is unfair. Really? Really? Is it that bad? Let's get some perspective. Do you know that we in America are the most fortunate people in the history of the world per capita? We're spoiled. Not us, them. Those other people in America. I really mean this though. I think living in America can be a spiritual curse. We've got it so good. We have these, you know, 
rich people's woes. We are the rich of the world. Yeah, those of us sitting in this room. And we're even richer in Christ. And then when we we come up against some little difficulty, we're just ready to jump ship and swim in a different direction. We're definitely ready to jump that fence and find the greener grass. Really, if we can't thrive with Christ under these circumstances, Lord, help us. And you know what? The Lord will help us if we trust him and obey him. It's said that being an adult is basically that feeling when the fireworks are over and it's time to go home. It's just that it's all the time. There is a level of boredom to being an adult. There is a level of boredom to being an American. In fact, so often we think of uh, entertainment, excitement. I need something to kind of charge up my life, make it count. If that's the way we're feeling, we need to renew our commitment to Jesus Christ. And we need to set our eyes on greater truths of real riches, satisfaction, and wholeness that is ours in God. And the fact that in all the myriad of little boring things that make up our daily lives, if we have lost sight of the fact that we can, we can have joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, <laughs> if we aren't grateful and making a difference in the world around us, in the lives of others, and looking at them and seeing them as Jesus would see them, then it's time for us to get back to basics, back to our first love, and back to our greatest devotion in Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray. You know, you know the drill. We're going to be down here. If the Lord's spoken to you, you want to pray with me or others of the pastoral staff, elders or their wives, we invite you to come. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you love us so and you want to make us wise to the meaning of life and satisfaction that is ours and found only in you. We praise you for this rich opportunity, rich reality that is ours. And we praise you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.